0: Family, it's good to be back and it's a real privilege to be bringing the word of God to you at this present moment. Um, we've been going through this series in First Peter. on week four and I guess my message is really gonna focus on the last section of chapter two. And um, my prayer, my hope is that throughout this series that really as a church, we have already been nourished as we've been reminded, we've been exalted of the grace that we have received and really to set our hopes fully on the grace we have received and will receive when Jesus Christ returns. And add to that what was just shared last week about how because of God's grace in bringing us to Christ, that that living stone, precious and chosen by God, it means that we're not just common people, we're not. You look to your left, you look to your right. This is not just simply a social gathering. No, because we are God's people, chosen by Him. We, are, we have been made into a royal priesthood. We are his special possession and we are called to be witnesses on this earth for him here in London. Now, I guess the obvious question that should follow, the question that really we should be asking is that in light of being living stones, God's special possession, and in light of already believing the living word, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and also possessing living hope. How should we, how should the church, individual Christ followers, therefore live? Or put it another way, what does living as a witness for God look like? Well, Peter, thankfully, in these verses that we're going to read from today, he, he gives us an answer. He starts to give us an answer. It starts in this last section of chapter two, and it just follows through into chapter three. And though his instruction I guess to these churches who are scattered throughout what is today modern day Turkey was written in the context of the first century. It would not be a lie to say that his words inspired by the spirit are much needed for us today in the 21st century. Because as we're gonna see, Peter, he's appealing to these groups of believers who are living in what we might call socially and religiously diverse cities. In other words, these believers, they lived in what we might say is a pluralistic age. There were various forms of worship and therefore lifestyles. You had people worshipping all types of gods. You had traditional and indigenous religions. You had the syncretistic religions, much like, I guess, the new age today where you've got this mixing of various religious faults. You had mystery cults. You had emperor worship alongside Judaism. It's much like I guess in our society today where you've got this whole my truth cult, which is very dominant, where everyone has their truth. And we almost say they're equally valid and true, even when they contradict. It doesn't make sense, does it? Now, you can imagine that in order to maintain social cohesion in such an environment, given the sheer diversity, a false kind of sense of tolerance would have had to, I guess, prevail. And if you briefly look at Roman history in any, I guess, sense of the, of, of the word, you would find that that actually was the case. You could worship whoever you wanted, provided that you paid homage and honour to the Roman gods. It's a bit like in our modern day. You can have your religion. You can say you worship Jesus, provided you don't say he's the only way to God. Or provided you don't have certain views about sexuality or gender. And so given the state of play in that day, where being a Christian causes you to stand out and where you may have been called names and falsely accused because you don't say or do that, which the common person does, there's a tendency in in all of us really to want to assimilate, to retreat, to dim our light and even affirm and adopt lifestyles that we otherwise wouldn't. Just so that we can get along and be like everyone else. And it's really into this context that Peter speaks and he appeals to these believers, urging them to live according to their condition. And that condition being that they are a free people in Christ, but because they are free, they are foreigners and exiles in this present world. So we're now gonna turn to 1 Peter chapter two. I'm gonna be reading from verses 11 to 25. It says, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. So in this passage, Peter gives these believers really three areas or three aspects of their lives where they can bear witness for Christ within the pagan world and culture in which they lived. They are one, in their personal conduct, two, in their relationship to human establishments or authority, and then three, in relationship to their masters, or I guess in our day, we might say employers or bosses, managers. But in verse 17, Peter, he summarizes and encapsulates what this life really looks like. And he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Christians are servants of God. Christians are free people. The church of Jesus Christ is free. You're not in bondage, you are free. And this is important because what we believe deep down about ourselves will determine how we therefore live or put it another way, your understanding of your condition impacts how you live. And this is so closely connected to the way, I guess, Peter addresses the church in verse 11. Notice he calls them foreigners and exiles. Now, I'm sure that like many of us, they they had these believers. Some of them would have had ancestors, generations of ancestors that lived and came from these very cities. There might have been some maybe who just settled in. And so from a social perspective, they would have truly been foreigners while the others wouldn't have. But notice Peter addresses all of them as foreigners and exiles. Why? Because from a heavenly or a kingdom perspective, those who are natives of this world are people who they live their lives solely to really fulfill every internal desire and passion that arises. That's what Ephesians 2 says, rather than keeping the word of Christ. Though thinking they're free, they actually remain enslaved to the ruler of this world, Satan. And that's where I was, that's where each and every one of us were before Christ. Whereas those who are foreigners in this world or foreigners of this world are those who are truly free because Jesus has set them free from the grips of Satan, from the grips of sin and from the ways of the world. We often don't, I guess, put it this way, but Jesus' work of salvation, his death on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the grave, it actually made once foreigners of heaven natives, and once natives of this world, foreigners. That is who we are. We're citizens of heaven, but foreigners of this present world. Jesus says in John 15, 19, he says, "'If you were of the world, "'the world would love you as its own. "'But because you are not of the world, "'but I chose you out of the world, "'therefore the world hates you.'" And so you see, this has implications then for how people who might be hostile to Christ view us. But more, I guess, more to the point of this message, our status as foreigners should impact how we therefore live. So the first application Peter makes here is how, I guess, how free people should live is with regards to our personal conduct. And so you see in verses 11 and 12, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." You see, part of being foreigners in this world and living as free people in Christ involves abstaining from and overcoming sin in our personal lives. This is a mark of being free and you may ask how? Well, notice how Peter speaks of the passions of the flesh. Those desires that stem, that arise from our sinful nature, such as maybe jealousy, envy, anger, pride, and things like these. He says that they wage war against your soul. These passions, be it lust, they seek to overcome you. They seek to enslave you. And so to abstain from these passions, or to put it another way, to win the war against sin, it implies possessing weaponry or a power that is strong enough to defeat and conquer those very desires. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read through history and when I take an honest look at my own life before coming to Christ, no one has been found to possess such power bar one. Abraham, he lied to save his back. David, he went out and committed sexual immorality. In the Quran, it says that Muhammad is asking for forgiveness Paul says, and he calls himself, you see it in the scriptures, the worst of sinners. So put simply, it doesn't matter what religion you follow. It doesn't matter what age you've lived in or how much we scream about how unique we are. The truth is people of the world are very much the same. All live according to the passions of the flesh, carrying out the sinful desires of the body and mind. But if you're a citizen of heaven on the other hand, then Jesus, who came from heaven to earth and who in every respect has been tempted, just like you and I have, has been found without sin. And so by grace and through faith, he gives us that very same power so that we may abstain. You can overcome lust. That's right, I said it. You can overcome addiction. You can overcome unforgiveness because Jesus has set you free from sin and he's given you the power of the Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to overcome it. And that's why Peter can say to us in this passage, abstain, because he's aware of the riches and the grace of God that has been given to those who are in Christ. And that's why we should cringe, really, whenever we hear or even believe internally this statement that there's not much of a difference between Christians and non-Christians. The only difference is Jesus. As if having Jesus is almost synonymous to us all looking the same, but you've got some Christians over there in the corner who are wearing this Jesus hat. (laughs) Because that can't, it couldn't be further from the truth. Why? Because being in Christ makes such a huge difference. I spoke to someone the other day and they said, it makes an eternal difference. So much so that Jesus, He says in Matthew five to his disciples, he says this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. You see, that's the thrust of, I guess, Peter's instruction here in verse 12, that as the church, those who have been radically saved, again, by God's grace, but those who have been radically saved and set free from sin, who are now slaves of righteousness, that our lives should be such that when non-Christians see it, even if they call us names because they might not understand what we believe or maybe even disagree with what we believe, some must say, but I can't knock their compassion. I can't knock their love. I can't knock their selflessness. It's so foreign. It's so divine. And in so doing, they... Basically, are giving glory to our Father in heaven who has saved us and who lives in us through his spirit. So this is the first area of our witness, living free in our personal conduct. But the second area of application that Peter makes is really with regards to the church's relationship to human institutions or authority. And I guess it's important to state right here that when we speak of freedom, Christian freedom, the type of freedom that Christ has brought us into, It's radically different from the way society, I guess, speaks or defines freedom um, to be. In our day, more or less, freedom really just coincides with rebellion. Take kids, for example. Some kids might say, I want to be free. But what do they mean? Really, this means I don't want to follow what my parents have to say, but I want to eat chocolate maybe for breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah. Society says, young man or young woman, be free. But what they mean is go and explore, engage in any sexual activity that you like, really not regarding the detrimental, I guess, consequences that usually are associated with such. I lived that life. In other words, freedom in the world is simply having the ability to do that which is pleasing in my own eyes. But true freedom, The freedom that Christ gives us is the ability to do that which accords with righteousness, to desire and to live in such a way that is pleasing to God. And that's only possible, as we know, through faith in Christ, who then fills us with his Holy Spirit. And so when Peter writes in verse 13 and 14, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. Just talking about justice, that's their role and establishing justice and peace in the earth. It's important that we have in mind what I've just said, that our expression of freedom as Christians doesn't lead us to become anarchists or revolutionaries or terrorists. Rather, as we see in Peter's instruction here to the church, Christian freedom says to the believer that although you submit and serve a king who is far greater more powerful than any Roman emperor or governor, president or prime minister. In fact, Ephesians 1 says of Jesus that he is seated far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Even though this is the Jesus who you serve and he is far greater than them all, Christian freedom still looks like submitting to an authority that is lesser than his. Christian freedom still looks like submitting to other humans that are not as perfect as he is. And that's radical. And we, I guess we, we get that, we learn that because Jesus himself teaches us with his own life and ministry that human authority does not originate with man, but with God. I'm gonna say that again, human authority, no matter how pagan or antichrist it may be, doesn't originate with man, but with God. And if you've ever read John's gospel before, towards the end, I believe it might be chapter 19. Don't, don't, don't um, take me for that. Go and check your Bibles. But towards the end of John's gospel, you will know that when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate, basically at the point of his death, and Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor over Judea, Pilate, he basically says to Jesus um, that your life is in my hands. In other words, he's saying that as governor, I have authority over you and i love how jesus responds to him he doesn't say no you don't and neither does he simply say yes you do instead he says this he says you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above hear what he's saying although he is the son of god he humbly submits to human authority because he knows that that authority stems from his father and as we know Pilate condemns Jesus to be crucified and he doesn't resist. Why? Because in desiring, in wanting to submit to our Father's will, Jesus knew that he had to also submit to Pilate. And Jesus is our example in this area of of Christian freedom and really in every other area. Our submission to the state shouldn't be based on the goodness or character of our prime minister. And that's a message I guess that is really relevant and needs to be heard today. Thankfully, our political system is different from the Roman one and it's such that we can actually voice our concerns and the church has a vital prophetic role um, to play in that. But for instance, it doesn't mean that we should now turn around and say, oh, you know what, as Christians, we're not going to pay our taxes because um, the government failed to meet up um, to their own COVID measures. No, but neither do we submit because we're afraid of getting on the wrong side of the government as if we're people pleasers and enslaved to them. No, rather we submit, or as Peter puts it, we are to be subject to every human institution only for the Lord's sake. We submit as Christians because we are servants of Christ, not using our freedom as a cover up for evil, but we obey and we pray that they do justice in all their dealings because of our devotion and service to the Lord who has put them there. But equally, And this is important, it's not really, I guess, the emphasis of Peter's point in this passage, but it's important for us to fully understand as Christians who are free people. And that is that because of the law, because of our service to him, we don't give to the state that which belongs to God. Or as Peter himself puts it in Acts 5, there are situations that arise, namely when the explicit commands of God in scripture or the will of God contradicts human authority. And in such instances, we are to obey God rather than man. And this is really important, very important, especially when we consider the cultural context of the church that Peter's writing to, a misunderstood and a persecuted minority that are already known for worshiping this king who they say is greater than Caesar. And so you can, and that's true, but you can imagine that in such a context, um, especially given the Jewish, I guess, history of rebellion and revolt, it's quite easy it would have been quite easy for Christians to turn into revolutionaries and hence Peter's charge to them. However, when compared to the church in the West today that we're a part of, that lives in relative comfortability, though that is changing, we need yes to heed the words that Peter says here in 1 Peter, but I believe we also need to hold on to what he says in Acts chapter five. Put simply, we are to submit to every human authority for the Lord's sake but also be willing to rise up and speak truth and justice for that very same reason. And that's because we belong to the Lord and the Lord alone. But the final, I guess, application that Peter makes in this passage is probably the most, for me anyway, the most challenging one. So far, Peter has instructed the church, the believers on living free in regards to their personal conduct in their relationships to human authority. But in these last last few verses, he speaks specifically to Christians who happen to be slaves. And we know that in the Roman Empire, slavery was common practice. And thankfully, many slaves became Christians and were treated as full and equal citizens and people. Again, we read about that in Galatians chapter three. Nonetheless, because of our history, modern history, and the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade, it can be quite easy to overlook what Peter is trying to say here. And therefore we might miss the principle that he's seeking to point us to. So let's pay close attention. He says in verses 18 and 19, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly." Again, it's radical because in our societal concepts of freedom, freedom is being able to do whatever you want, that which brings you the most good and that, uh, I guess, brings, as it were, the least amount of harm. And although elsewhere in scripture, God through Paul does tell specifically Christian slaves that they are to, if they can gain freedom, they are to take it and they should, here we see Peter, Taken almost, he gives us a different take. Maybe because in their situation, freedom from physical slavery wasn't an option at present. But nonetheless, regardless of the speculation, he calls them to submit to their masters. Now, if he had said, only submit to those who are good and gentle, I'm sure that many of us, and maybe even some in our culture would say, all right, then maybe that can do. But as we've seen with these various instructions, these charges that Peter gives us in this letter, the Christian who is a foreigner in this world and a citizen of heaven is called to a higher calling, which bears witness to the grace of God in our lives. And that's why Peter says, don't just submit to the good and gentle. Majority of people do that. It's similar to Jesus's teaching. I believe in um, the Sermon on the Mount where he says, don't just greet people who know you but greet those who don't, greet those who even don't love you. And so Peter says, don't just submit to the good and gentle, but submit also to the masters who are unjust. And as you read in the passage, Peter already had in mind the type of injustice such believers in such a position would have to endure. He says that they they would potentially endure physical beatings although they had done nothing wrong. And although, I guess, thankfully today This type of relationship doesn't really exist. We don't come into face and contact with it in our day to day due in large part really to the spread of the gospel and Christian teaching that has transformed social relationships around the world. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but cringe and even think, oh God, why? Why does this type of suffering not just exist, but why is it a part of your will? And by that, I mean the type of suffering that comes even when you've done good. And as if Peter knew This would be the question that his um, readers would be asking in their hearts. And so he points them and that's what we must always do. We are to be pointed to Jesus Christ, our example. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You see, like a slave in the Roman empire, Jesus Christ was beaten and had physical wounds. Like an innocent slave, he had done no wrong and no sin was found in him. He suffered and he did not threaten his oppressors. He was verbally abused and he did not pay them back. Instead, he entrusted himself to his father, knowing that his father will do what is right and just. And because of that posture, and mindset that our Lord possessed, his sufferings became our redemption. Look what Peter says, he writes in verse 24 and 25, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So church, in light of, I guess, all of this that we've just been going through and shared, let us follow our shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Whether you're in maybe in a work situation and you're not getting recognised for all the good that you've done, endure. Don't get bitter, but entrust yourself to God. May our relationship to the government reflect more of our love for Christ and reflect that we are foreigners in this world and free in him rather than fear fear or even just human approval or party politics. And may we remember that we have been set free by him. And so that means that we are a people who he has called out of darkness to be zealous for good works. And that as we do that, may the world see it and give glory to our father who is in heaven. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the example of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the life. Thank you for the spirit that he has given to us. And Lord, I pray that as your people who are foreigners in this world, but citizens of heaven, that you would help us to live in such a manner that glorifies you in our own personal lives by overcoming sin through the power of the spirit, through our relationship to the government, oh Lord or being willing to submit, but also being willing to stand up for truth and righteousness where needed. And Lord, we pray even in our work situations or circumstances where Lord, you call us to endure suffering but for your glory's sake. Help us, Lord, we pray. Use us as your church. In Jesus' name, amen.